Welcome, everybody, to Volume 8 of the Dropping Keys podcast. Yes, Volume 8 of conversations with real people living real lives to glean their insights and keys to life, leadership, love, and whatever else we get into. I'm Joel Morgan, your host and the head of Key Exploration. Well, why Dropping Keys? In a few moments, you'll hear me read a poem by Hafez, who was a 14th century mystic and poet, and that is the inspiration for this podcast. Why me? Well, it's taken me a long time to figure this out, but I think I figured out what my purpose is in life. I wake people up for a living. I instigate important conversations with individuals and organizations to help them move forward. I'm a writer. I'm a coach. I'm an inspirational speaker, and I'm a seeker of keys to help myself and others live lives of meaning and purpose. Well, why real people and why real life? To be completely transparent, I am not attracted to the superstars, quote unquote, of our time. I've heard enough from them. I wanted to hear from people who are really in the arena, giving their heart and their soul to work, family, community, those who don't get the big headlines or have their praises sung from on high. I didn't hear those voices out there, really, and I wanted to bring them to life, and I wanted to bring them to you. And very selfishly, I wanted an excuse to ask great questions, to plumb the depths of what gives others life and releases them from the cages in which they find themselves. And today we're in for another treat. My Dropping Keys co-conspirator today is Alana Sheeran. She's a true Renaissance woman in my mind. She uses her passions to make the world a kinder, more compassionate place. Whether speaking from the 10X stage, as host of the Create Your Magical Life podcast, or in her work with clients, she combines her training as a therapist and her intuitive abilities to help people change their lives. Currently, She's directing and producing her first documentary film, which is called Listen Closely. It examines the way deep listening affects the quality of your life. The film features thought leaders such as Ram Das, Dr. Daniel De C J. Siegel, and Gay and Catherine Hendricks. When she's not working, you can find her taking pictures of Southern California sunsets, reading a good book, dancing in the kitchen with her husband, her daughter, and Turtle the dog. Well, how would I describe Oana? Well, Renaissance woman is the phrase that I came up with because she uses things like multi-passionate, which I think is wonderful. But how would I describe her outside of being a Renaissance woman is she just brings together her complete self to whatever it is she's doing and just allows that expression of herself to bring the, the thing to life and have it live. And so that's why I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk with Alana today. I'm so glad that you're here for volume eight. And so now I'm going to, um, I'm going to read Dropping Keys. I'm going to read Dropping Keys to you and as soon as I'm done reading Dropping Keys, I'm just going to be quiet and I'm going to just allow you to respond to this poem. So here it is. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful rowdy prisoners.
That's such a lovely poem. It's funny how it just fills me. I can physically feel the effects of it in my body. It fills me with this sense of delight, you know, dropping keys for the beautiful rowdy prisoners. And it really is who I want to be as I walk through the world and who I want to spend time with, who I want to connect with. Um, I think that, I mean, you can see my face right now, but no one else can, but I've got this huge smile on my face because I just, I just feel like, yes, that is life, right? Like, why would we not want to spend our time dropping keys? Why would we not want to spend our time picking up magical keys? Why would we not want to make the world a more beautiful, boisterous place? Mm. Yeah. You know, and I think about all the keys that I've picked up that have been dropped for me and how, how they've shaped me and how they've gotten to me, gotten me to where I am in my life right now. And then I think, you know, I wonder, I know I've dropped some keys, but I also, I think so many times we drop keys without realizing it just by the virtue of who we are and how we show up in the world. And sometimes I get feedback on that. And a lot of times, you know, we just, we don't, we don't necessarily hear how we're affecting people. And I think that's one of the great sort of delights and surprises in life is, oh, what am I going to, what am I going to discover about myself today? What am I going to discover about the world today? How am I going to impact someone else's life today? It makes it fun in a time when I feel like I need that. (laughs) You know, things can feel really heavy sometimes. Um, And so bringing that sense of delight and that sense of discovery and that sense of wondering, curiosity, sharing, sharing wisdom, caring, bringing all of that. To me, that's what makes life worth living. Keeps me going. That's a lot, isn't it? Just in that little compact writing. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, what's been the most surprising, to to use the key metaphor, what's been the most surprising key that, someone has said that you had dropped for them. Hmm. What's coming to mind for me immediately is after my son was stillborn and I started blogging about it and was just, it was really for myself. I had just started a blog right before he, he was stillborn and I wanted to capture the dailiness of grief the daily grappling with it and how we hold it alongside the rest of life. And what started to happen in this recording of my, my moments was that people told me how much it helped them. And I think that's, I still get emails about that today. I still get, Um, well, a a TEDx talk came out of that experience as well. And I still get people reaching out and saying how much that's helping them. And so I feel like, you know, it was such a transformational experience for me and I was just trying to help myself through it. And, and the fact that that helped so many other people, I mean, I feel like that's part of my son's legacy, right? 
Like, I feel like that's part of what keeps him alive. Mm. Well, I knew we would get to this subject of grief <laughs> and your son, but I didn't think we would, we would jump Start right there. in, uh, that, which is, which is what I, why I love this, why I love this poem and why I love this podcast is because we don't, we don't mess around. We get right to the, to the real stuff. Well, so what, as now, some years hence, right, from, from writing that daily blog of, of walking alongside the grief, what, what keys might you have for, for, I love how you said that, holding that dailiness of grief alongside of our lives? What keys do you have that you might drop for people now? Hmm. Yeah, well, we're 10 years out from that now. And I would say that a couple of things. One is that you really can't do grief wrong. There's a lot of judgment in our culture around grief. And there's a lot of, oh, you got to go through the five steps, or you got to do it this way, or you got to do it that way, or you're, you're, you're grieving too long, or whatever it is. And I just want people to know that you you don't really do grief wrong. You just have to do grief. You know, you just have to live with it and live through it. And it is not an easy thing. And, and the other thing that I've learned moving through a decade of anniversaries and Christmases and would be birthdays and all of that um, is that the body knows the body knows. So even if you've forgotten that it happens to be, you know, for me, it was um, the anniversary of his due date. You know, I always remember the anniversary of the day he actually was stillborn, but, but the anniversary of his due date, I will often, my body will be like, I'm sad today, or I'm grumpy today, or I'm you know, whatever it is. And then I look at the calendar and I think, oh, my body knows. And so I think we just have to listen to ourselves and give ourselves grace around, around all of it. I mean, and a third thing I would say is that grief begets grief. Like if there's a, if you see someone who's grieving, it brings up your grief and that's not wrong and that's not bad. It just is. And we just have to give ourselves the space to be human. Mm. I, I, I think so often we judge, you know, in, in the conversation you and I had uh, prior to this call, it's, we talked about the sort of the soft skills not being um, valued or, or I always say they're not sexy, right? Like, learning how to be vulnerable isn't necessarily sexy or learning how to listen isn't necessarily sexy. And yet, and yet it is such a valuable part of being human and it keeps us connected to ourselves and to each other. And, and if we can be present for those moments that maybe don't feel so sexy or don't feel so fun, um, it means that we get to be present for the sexy moments, for the fun moments more fully. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. I think it's funny that you say it's not sexy, but, but what do um, what do a lot of at least sort of a stereotypical thing um, that that you hear like in in the dating world and in, in sort of traditional male female roles is oh he really listens to me 
you know, like again, in a, in a stereotypical traditional, you know, and so you're like, well, actually that is pretty sexy, but it's funny that we don't, we don't think it is. We don't think it is as we had that in that conversation earlier. So do you think we're there? I mean, I, I, I love this. You know, you cannot get grief wrong. The body knows grief begets grief. Those sound like cages that, that, well, at least the, you, that getting grief wrong, right. Is a cage mm-hmm. that we can p- put ourselves in or other people or that, mm-hmm. or that when the body is having this reaction that we go, Oh, I should be over this mm-hmm. and be a cage, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other, did you, did you find yourself at going over this, these past 10 years, finding yourself in some cages that, that you had to, somebody else had to drop some other keys for you to get out of that, came along with the grief? Oh, for sure. Um, Oh gosh, I'm going to forget who said it. I think it was C.S. Lewis actually, who said, no, so I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, no one told me that grief feels so much like fear. Mm. And I feel like that is a cage that I spent some real time in. Um, My daughter turned three, 11 days after my son was still born. And I had never had much fear around her safety and well-being until that happened. And so after that happened, that, I mean, I would stay awake at night with my hand on her stomach to make sure she, she was breathing, you know, um, because I always ended up, my pregnancy with my son, Ben, was was quite traumatic. And I ended up in the hospital in the middle of the night three times before he was finally stillborn. And And so that nighttime fear would grip me and that definitely felt like a cage. And I think it's a very common cage with grief as well. So that's something that I've, I've had to work on and work with other people on and, and work, you know, just constantly at, and it can still rear its head any, any day, you know, I can be like, Oh, there's that cage again, just slam the door shut. How do I, you know, what key do I need to open that? Um, and I think the other one is, oh gosh, I just lost it. You know, it's really, there, there are so many cages. I think the judgment around how we're doing things and an interesting cage for me was after Ben was stillborn, I thought I am going to work through all of my issues so that I don't have to deal with this kind of a situation ever again, right? Like this is my chance to change who I am and change my life. And so I think as sort of noble as that might've been in some ways, it was also really misguided in other ways because what happened then is if I wasn't constantly in this sort of pushing for growth, pushing for change, pushing to figure out every little weakness or every way that I, that I get in my own way, then I could beat myself up a bit about it. And that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that, you know, I have, perfectionist tendencies to begin with. And I'm much better than I was when I was younger, but, but I think that sense of needing to make meaning and needing to find purpose and needing to ensure in an attempt to control 
the future. I needed to ensure that I was doing everything in my power to learn every lesson from this horrific experience. And, um, and sometimes I just needed to just grieve, you know? And so that was a, that was a juggling act. That was a bit of a balance. And sometimes I would find myself in that cage and then I'd be like, Oh, okay, let's get out of this one. Cause that doesn't feel good. You know, I'm staying up too late and I'm beating my head against a wall to learn something new or whatever. And I just need to go to bed. Um, the ways the ways that we can be unkind to ourselves. I was just thinking um, the writer Tom Coyne um, wrote something to the effect of whenever I try to strangle out of life what I you know what I think I need is basically he goes on basically is when he gets into trouble right um, you know. <laughs> And, and that was really, I, I need to, re, re, I need to actually memorize the quote because I just think it's so good. Cause I think about that a lot. Cause I, I, I was very much identified with what you were saying. Like I've got to get every drop of whatever it is out of this, you know, um, radish, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or a turnip. Mm-hmm. I've got to get every drop of blood out of this tournament that I can get, you know, and, and just strangle the life out of it. And in essence, I'm strangling the life out of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, I just, yeah, so identified for that. Well, so I want to, I want to go back in your life a little bit because you said something about perfectionistic tendencies and you were, you were trained as a dancer, if I remember correctly, right? Or did a lot yes. of, did a lot of dance mm-hmm. um, at a, at a, at a earlier time in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how did, how did perfectionistic tendencies and all of that, how did, how did dancing play into to any of that? Well, <laughs> I think it's, I mean, I grew up as a ballet dancer and I'm tall for a ballet dancer. So it was never going to be, I mean, 30 years ago, it wasn't really going to be the profession that I stepped into, Um, but it was my passion. It was my love. And my mom was actually a a ballet dancer and danced on Broadway. She was like the ingenue in New York city for a couple of years in the early sixties and um, or mid sixties. And so I think dancers are naturally, especially ballet dancers, perfectionists, mm-hmm. you know, the, the form demands it. And I was a good student and I wanted to be good at everything I did. And I didn't try things very, I didn't really do things that I wasn't good at, um, downhill skiing, I wasn't good at. So I stopped, you know, I just gave up uh, that kind of thing. So I think perfectionism really put me into a box that was hard to break out of. But interestingly, well, and you know, you can never just, you can never live up to the perfectionist standard, which is a um, I mean, for me, it was, it was misery, right? Mm -hmm. It just caused me to be a very unhappy person in, in my twenties. I stopped dancing professionally in my early twenties and I moved into acting and those perfectionist tendencies, I think actually held me back as an actor. Uh, I did a wonderful theater school program, which really freed my creativity and took those perfectionistic tendencies down a little bit. But then when I when I moved into doing more, auditioning more for film and television work and, and uh, it just, oof, it was painful to be me, <laughs> you know? 
you look in the mirror and it's like, you're not skinny enough. You're not short enough. You're not, you know, you're not skinny enough to be the lead, but you're not heavy enough to be the best friend. You know, the sort of the categories at that time were um, pretty harsh. And um, I think learning to not be a perfectionist was a self-preservation technique. Mm. I was really unhappy and and I don't even know how I started to figure it out. I don't even know quite what I did, but I, and I, it still rears its head for me, but you know, my dad and I drove across the country together a couple years ago and he turned to me and he said, you know, I don't know how you did it. Like you're the rest of the family is still pretty perfectionist and you seem much more relaxed about things. And I just said, well, I've worked really, really, really hard to give myself more grace. Mm. And, um, you know, it's not always, my husband would tell you, I'm still hard on myself. I still expect a lot of myself, which I don't think is a bad thing in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but I've learned to be kinder to myself too. Mm. Mm. Also, what, what did that conversation feel like with your dad in that moment? You know, that trip was, so much fun for me. I don't think I'd ever spent four days alone with my dad. Um, you know, my mom and I were the artists in the family and my dad and my brother were the scientists in the family. So we would often split off in that way. Mm. And it was such a lovely, such a lovely experience. I will treasure it for the rest of my life. And in that moment, I just was delighted. I was, del I felt really seen mm. and I felt really, um, I, I felt a little validated. Like I was like, Oh, you know, he, he noticed. And I think that I've, my poor parents, especially my father, I think I've given him some, some sleepless nights with some of my choices over, over the course of my <laughs> life. So, so to have him recognize that, that change in me and how it has made me a happier healthier human being felt really just really lovely. Yeah. Being seen, being seen by, especially by somebody who's seen you your whole life, mm -hmm. been part of your formative years, been there for the good, the bad, the ugly, but then in those moments to really be seen, that's yeah, powerful. Yeah. Cause I think, I think sometimes we, we stop seeing the people who are closest to us. Really, truly, you know, in every moment, I think sometimes we assume that we see them. And so we stop actually looking and listening as carefully as we might to someone new. Oh, I agree. One of the things I share with people a lot is I forget where the research is, but basically if someone wrongs you, someone does something not good to you and not horrible, but let's just say it works. Somebody doesn't, doesn't takes the credit that for something that you did and whatever, if they do something good for you three times, you, you, you get back to equilibrium. Mm. But if your lover, your spouse, your parent, your, you know, whatever does something not so great to you, it actually takes five different acts to get back to equilibrium. And so we are harder on the ones that we love. Mm -hmm. And when I share that with people it, it, who've never heard it before, many of them are just like, that makes so much sense. 
<laughs> you know, it makes so much sense that we just don't, we, cause we, I, I, cause I think you said it well, like these, or at least this is what I was thinking was these people, they fulfill roles in our lives. And so sometimes, and I know I've been guilty of this for my sons, like they fulfill this, this, this role in my life. And so I don't ever just stop to be grateful for the fact that they're just here, mm-hmm. you know? Um, mm. no, I, I think that. some of that, I think some of that, I was just going to say, I think some of that research comes from the Gottman Institute from uh, John and Julie Gottman. Mm. Yeah. Which is, they have such fantastic information about relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the ones that do like the bids and the they can tell who mm-hmm. who's whose who's relationship isn't gonna last by watching like a 15-minute conversation or something. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. that's pretty wild. That's pretty wild <laughs> stuff. I've read I've read a bunch of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um oh gosh. Let's I just I'm still just stuck on that scene with your dad and 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 him sharing that. And what a wonderful what a wonderful thing to just to, to, a gift to be given to you. And and so now when you find yourself when you find yourself, whatever, trending to this perfection, which is not a standard at all, it's mostly a, a way to keep ourselves from doing stuff. What do you, how do you, how do you know? And, and what kind of keys do you use to be like, okay, I need to take care of myself or I need to not, this doesn't have to be that or, or whatever it is. I think over the last couple of years, I've really learned that when I'm in pain, emotional pain, it is because I am acting incoherently. I am acting not in accordance with my priorities and the sort of the core of who I am. And the perfectionist tendencies tend to make that happen. So I love the quote, and I don't know who said it first, I don't remember right in this moment, but um, perfect is the enemy of done. And I've learned to take more satisfaction in done than in perfect. Mm. And so I, I really, I mean, I'm one of those people whose emotional life is at the forefront all the time. It's just always in my conscious. How am I feeling? How am I feeling? How am I feeling? How am I feeling? And I recognize the pain much more quickly now. It's like, ooh, I am not in it. Like I'm grumpy or I'm, I'm frustrated with myself. I'm feeling dissatisfied. I feel like I want to crawl out of my own skin. Okay, what is happening? What is happening in my day? Oh, okay. I really wanted to get this done, but instead I've been scrolling Facebook or I really wanted to get this done, but instead I'm procrastinating in another way because I'm afraid that I can't be perfect. Well, then I just need to sit down and do it. Like right now, in fact, I'm working on a, on a tiny book, on a short book, kind of a journaling book. And I can write it beautifully in my head when I'm falling asleep. But then when I sit down at the computer, I can't find the right words and it can get really frustrating. Mm. But I just, am, I'm, I just keep sitting down at the computer and writing the words. Okay, I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to keep writing. And I haven't been doing it every day, which is my goal. But I recognize that on the days when I don't sit down, there's this little nugget of it's like when you get, um, you know, sand in your shoe or you have something that's, that's uh, just that little thing that is so irritating, but you can almost ignore it 
but then mm. you can't quite, and then it gets worse and worse mm. and worse. It's like, oh, okay, this is what I have ignored all day. This is what I want to do. And it's my fear that comes from my perfectionist tendencies that is stopping me from actually doing it. And so to me, the emotion is always the key mm. that, I, that I need to pick up in order to unlock the cage. Yeah. Yeah. Real self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, have there been, as you, you think back over your, your life thus far, have there been, have there been keys that you picked up at, at some point to unlock something that you were, you know, was, was keeping you in a box, keeping you in a cage that then you had to lay down later on. That was like, Oh, this works for now, but now it doesn't, it doesn't work for me anymore. It became, it became, it became a cage I was in rather than the, uh, you know, the key that freed me. Yeah, you know, what's coming to me actually is sort of uh, new age spirituality and the law of attraction. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, is, a, that's big. It is big. It is big. It's funny because there was a time in my life where that, I, I mean, I will say that I was never diagnosed with depression, but I think I spent a lot of my 20s kind of in a low grade depression. And there came a time where I just wanted to get out of my own way. And it happened before my daughter was born, but, but definitely when my daughter was born, that was a big kick in the pants because I didn't want my neuroses to sort of bleed over into her in the way that I just felt they could. So there was a real push for me at that time to go into kind of the self-help world. And, you know, I've always been drawn to spirituality. And this was at the time when, you know, Jack Canfield was really popular mm. and all of these sort of the law of attraction had just become super, super popular. I think the secret came out shortly after this. And, and there was a part of me, there was a part of my body that recognized a sense of truth. It was like the way I felt when I read, um, oh gosh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And then he wrote another book about the, the traveling guy. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, um, when I read that book, I felt like my, my spirit was opening up and freeing and soaring a little bit. And, and so there was, a, there was a recognition of that kind when I first was exposed to this kind of new age thinking. And it helped kind of shake me out of a, a pattern I had been in, a habit I had been in, a, a mental state that I had been in. But what I realized over the next 15 years or so is that I, it, it became a cage. Um, and I should say, I realized that much more quickly than 15 years, but, but it started to become a cage because what happened after my daughter was born and then my son was still born and I was having this fear, right? This fear and this grief, my, you know, law of attraction told me that if I focused on this fear, I was going to bring more death and destruction into my life. Like I actually went to someone and said, I'm terrified that my fear will kill my daughter. And that was the point where I realized it was a cage. It was not helpful for me. And so I really had to do some soul searching and some growth and some, some like, okay, what, 
what pieces of this feel true to me and what pieces of this feel like new age BS, mm, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh-huh. and, and how, you know, sometimes bad things happen to good people. Like there may be some sort of reason for it that we don't know as beings in bodies. Um, but to blame people for the things that are happening in their life, to ignore systemic societal issues in favor of just think the right thoughts and you'll change your life. To me, that became a very harmful cage. And so over probably the last seven or eight years, I've unpacked that and, mm. and had to set, really set that down and come, and come at it from a different angle. Mm. Yeah, I think of um, Jack Canfield. I think I've seen some times when he's teaching people and he's like, you've got to take 100% responsibility for everything that's ever happened to you in your life. And, and I think there, there are some valuable lessons there in terms of thinking through, well, how, what role did I play in mm-hmm. certain things, right? I mean, I think that that's valuable, but I'm, I'm definitely with you on the, if every bad thing that's happening to me, I'm causing, I'm going to be so focused on avoiding bad things that <laughs> I'm never, I'm never going to be able to go outside the house probably. Yeah. Um, well, and it's just so harmful to our mental. I mean, you can't tell people who, who uh, the system is stacked against, whether it's because of their, their gender or their sexuality or their, you know, class level, their poverty level, their skin color, any of it. Like you just can't say, it's all your fault without doing major harm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. Very interesting insight to, to see that and to see how it, how it then becomes detrimental to you rather than helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, so I was, you know, a little intimidated because of this conversation, because you're working on this film about listening. And so my role as, you know, in these conversations is to primarily be the listener. So I've been, you know, as, as I prepared, I was like, okay, really got to be on your game here, Joel, got to be ready for this. So I'd, so I'd love to know, as you've as you've been engaging this um, this beautiful project that I know has has you know hit some hit some road road some bumps and bruises here because of because of the pandemic, uh, what what keys have you found um, around listening as you've as you've engaged this this film project? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, I feel like one of the most important keys to remember is that no one is going to be a quote unquote perfect listener all the time. And that that's actually not what we're aiming for. So, you know, there are times where we want to have back and forth conversations, where we want to laugh with our friends, where we want to tell stories, where we want to step on each other's sentences because we're having such, you know, like that is fine in those moments of kind of fun and delight or passionate, you know, whatever it is, there are moments where that kind of conversation is, is connection building as well. And then there are moments where 
we just need to listen to someone. And, you know, we were talking earlier about, about relationships and how when people are dating and they're like, Oh, that, you know, he listens to me. And um, I think that's probably one of the hardest things in a, in a long-term relationship is knowing when you're having a conversation where you can have the back and forth and when you're having the conversation where it's like, Oh, I need to be quiet now and just listen and let my partner unload. Um, oh yeah. And not Pre- try to preach fix it. Them. Yeah. Bring that. That's yeah. Yeah. 20, 28 years of marriage this, this month and yeah. Feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. Bring yeah. that. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, all, first of all, congratulations on 28 years. Oh. That is not an easy feat. Um, I really feel like the, probably the biggest key is the self-awareness and the other awareness to really discern when it's time to shut up and listen and, and when it's okay to just chat, you know, or, or have a passionate conversation. And that is not, that is not an easy thing. That is not an easy thing. And most people tend to listen less than they need to. You know, our tendency is someone is saying something that is deeply emotional or painful or that we disagree with and it makes us uncomfortable and we want to cover that up as quickly as possible. We want to get away from that feeling of discomfort. So the more we can learn to just breathe and be present and not worry about whether what they're saying makes us wrong or whether what they're saying makes us uncomfortable or you know, sharing our own story of something similar. I, the, the more we can learn to do that, the better. And I think we also need to, you know, I've said give ourselves grace about a thousand times already today, but I really feel that's such, a, that's such an important part of just being alive is, is learn, you know, we have to be compassionate with ourselves as we learn. And so I've come home from, gatherings with friends where I've facilitated listening to everyone else and no one has asked me anything about myself. And I'll come home and I'll be like, huh, that's interesting. Like it probably would have been better for me to not wait for someone to listen to me, but to just be a bit of, you know, bigger part of the conversation. So we don't necessarily want that on a regular basis, but I've also come home from conversations where I'm like, oh man, that person really, I think wanted to share something important to them and I missed it. I just kept talking and we're all going to get it wrong, but the more conscious we are in the moment, the more present we are in the moment, the more we're able to set our own thoughts aside for a a brief moment. I, th- I think the better we get at it, you know, I've learned, well, you know, you're a coach, right? So you're, you're sitting with a client and you're thinking, okay, I have this thought. I want, they said this, I want to respond to that. And then they have this other thing they said, and I want to respond to that. So if you're someone who can write that down as you're going, that's great. But if you're not like, I've had to learn, okay, I'm just going to listen and be present. And when it's time for me to talk, I'm going to remember the most important thing. I don't have to remember everything that I want to say. And so I try and bring that into my relationships too. It can be especially hard with the people that are closest to us for sure. Like my husband and, and he's had to learn. 
he's actually gotten very good at discerning, oh, this is a moment where I just need to listen. And it's taken, you know, 15 years of marriage to, to get to that point. But, um, but also I've gotten good at saying, I just need you to listen to me right now. And I think that's the other thing we can do is really, you know, that is a big key that we can pick up is asking for what we need in the moment. Oh, I love that key. That's uh, when I, when I do premarital work uh, with couples and when I do marital work with couple, couples is one of the things that I almost always end up working with them on is how do you ask for what you really want and really need? You know, not telling them what you want and need, asking <laughs> for, what, for what you want and need. And it's, it's, it's really hard. We're not, we're not taught because for, there's a whole host of reasons, but it's just, it's so interesting. And then it's interesting when, like when they get it, and they practice it a little bit and then they and then they joke with each other throughout the next few weeks as they're trying to do it but they but they've learned a little bit of a new language mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um the famous story that i i tell about my wife and i is or it's really a series of stories because um in and sometimes we flip-flop sort of what again tr- sort of traditional roles in that if i start talking about something she wants to fix me Yes. Right away. She wants to or fix it right away. Maybe not me, but fix it. Yeah. And so I've had to learn because generally I've already, before I get to her, I've already processed it for days and I just need to share it with somebody. Yes. And so, and so I finally learned that I just need to say, I just need to share this with you. I do not need any more ideas and I don't need your help with this. I, I really just need to share this with somebody. And that person is you, if you're willing to listen to it, because if I don't, she's right back <laughs> into mm-hmm. the thing. And then I get mad because I'm like, right. I just want to get this off my chest. And then a five-year-old comes out, you know, anyway. <laughs> yes. so, uh, uh, so anyway, so I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing though, is I think, you know, part of it is self-awareness, right? And then part of it is, is learning the people around us and, and picking up those cues of, oh, this is not something I need to fix. This is, you know, and I think actually we almost n- never need to fix the other person, mm. you know, maybe with our children, but advice giving, unless it's specifically asked for, eh, you know, I, my feeling is that most people have the wisdom inside that they need. They just need to talk it out with, to someone. Yeah. They need to have a sounding board. Well, and that's, and, and from my, from my vantage point, that that's the true coach's position too, mm-hmm. is that people have the answer. And so it's funny, I'll have clients who are like, well, you're the coach, tell me. And I'm like, you know, that's not the deal. Like I said, I could tell you, I could tell you exactly what you need to do. And it could be exactly the right answer. And you're not going to go do it. Yes. Because I told you. But if we sit here and we talk and I listen and we have good questions, you're going to come to something because it's already there and you're going to go do it. And it's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be so much happier for you <laughs> because I didn't tell you to go do something. You don't need me to tell you. You already know, but we're going to create this thing where you're free to explore and figure out maybe what that thing is. Anyway, I, I love it when it works, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the beautiful thing about having a coach or a therapist is that container is already built, right? It's like we know in that that relationship that it's not about necessarily depending on, I mean, if it's a business coach, it might be different or something, you know, specific career coach, right? right. Generally the container is built so that it's 
this is the space where I go to talk and you reflect things back to me and I figure things out for myself, you know, and, and to have those people in our lives. I have a couple of friends that I've been on the phone with. It started as a mastermind with, I think six of us. And now it's down to three of us and it's been seven or eight years. And we just have a language now where it's like, we can come to each other and say, I just need you to catch this for me. Mm. Or I just need a place to set this down, you know? And as soon as those words get spoken, everybody knows what's needed, which is just listening, just space. And I just love, I just love having that kind of shorthand vocabulary. And I think that it, we can build it with as many people as we want to. Um, And sometimes it takes a little more work if people just don't have the exposure to that kind of connection and conversation. But um but yeah, so I always think discernment is one of the biggest keys to, to being a good listener. Yeah, I like that discernment. Yeah. So it's kind of a segue here. We're still in relationships, but early on in your marriage, things didn't, weren't going so well. <laughs> and, and I've heard you tell the story of having to, in a sense, rebuild rebuild that relationship. And now 15 years, that's... Tremendous. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So my husband and I separated for three months, five months into our marriage. And we were not good communicators. Mm. And there were some things that were really broken and we decided we loved each other enough to try and Mm. fix them. And I mean, it was a life, it was a life changing moment because I think for me, it was the moment when I recognized that there was a pattern in my relationships, in my intimate relationships that was repeating itself. And I could run away from this one and likely have it repeat itself again, or I could choose to turn towards love and do the hard work required. And thankfully both of us chose to turn towards love and do the hard work required. And really, honestly, one of the biggest keys was learning to listen to, listen to each other and to be as honest as possible with each other, you know, really, really expressing ourselves and asking for what we needed in the moment. And it was not easy, but I also know that had we not done that, I don't think we would have survived parenting. And I definitely know we wouldn't have survived the stillbirth of our son. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we celebrated 16 years this year and it, with the pandemic, my husband is normally on the road, at least part of the week, probably 40 to 45 weeks out of the year. And he's been home since the end of February. And there was a part of me that thought, Ooh, How's this going to go? Like we yeah. don't normally yeah. spend yeah. this much we, time. We, we built this beautiful, <laughs> this beautiful structure. Is it going to withstand the pressure of this cauldron or whatever that we're in? I'm mixing metaphors up quite crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gosh. But because we built these skills, because we are able to, to communicate in ways that we've learned over the years and that, that we've really worked on, they've been pra- communication practices and, and learning how to be wrong and learning how to apologize to each other and learning how to step away and take a breath and come back. And, 
you know, we, we've had a great time. It's been wonderful to have him home. And um, I'm going to, you know, when he goes back on the road, I'm going to, I'm going to miss him more than I did before because it just has been lovely. And I really think that all of that comes down to communication. And I, I just feel like maybe people are lucky to have a communication class in college. Maybe they talk a little bit about it somewhere in high school, but for the most part, we are not taught how to communicate. And if we are taught how to communicate, it's usually how to speak. It's usually how to deliver a message effectively. It's not about listening. And yet listening is fundamental, fundamental to every relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not. mm, Sorry, I was just going to say, and especially in this moment, right? In this moment. Yes. This moment in time, which hopefully isn't much longer than a moment, (laughs) but it feels like it's been a lifetime already. Mm -hmm. Mm. Sorry, I cut you off. You were going to say. Well, I was just going to say it's not. It's it's simple. It's so simple, but it's not easy. And I think that's that's the trick there, too, is we have to be willing. We have to be willing to be wrong. We have to be willing to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to be in pain. We have to be willing to um, love. We have to be willing to be compassionate. And, and right now that can be really hard. You know, people are, people are worn thin. Uh, That's a, that's a great metaphor. Yeah. People are worn thin. One of the, one of the themes that's run through um, my podcast so far, Dropping Keys is um, self-compassion and self-love have just have just been almost every person has has talked about it in some form or another that that was a key that they had that they had to figure out or that was dropped for them to unlock just who they were to be able to live their lives and to become people who could who could be better mm-hmm. and seek to just be better you know, through their lives i just i, I just find it so fascinating because we are so bad at it <laughs> We're so bad at it. And it's part of, I'm not, I'm not very well studied in Islam, um, but it is part of Christianity. It is part of Buddhism. It is part, of, I think there's, there are pieces of it in Judaism, you know? Um, I mean, and of course the, Christ, the part of Christianity comes out of Judaism. So, but I, it's just amazing to me that we have this as core beliefs in some of the major philosophical and theological systems in our world, but we we're horrible at it. And because we're horrible at self-compassion and self-love, Hmm. We're not very compassionate for people outside of ourselves either, but well, it's not sexy. It's that it goes, yeah, back, there to we go. it goes, back, right? it goes back to what we value right, as a right? culture, right? Like yeah. it doesn't necessarily, we don't think it makes us money. We don't think it makes mm. us like have, you know, sexier bodies. We don't, you know, these things that we value in our culture, we don't know how self-love and self-compassion affect our bottom line. And, and I think that is a real, I think that is somewhere that we really fall down Mm -hmm. here 
in Western culture in particular, I think that that piece of um, not valuing the fundamental things that connect us and make us a community and make us healthy, whole human beings. We, you know, there are studies that show that emotional intelligence is a much greater predictor of lifetime success than IQ and, you know, than, than, and we, we really struggle with valuing it. Yeah. 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 And even when you, even when you hear the, you know, the top CEOs keep saying, you know, at least with their mouths, um, we want these relational skills. We, we, we can train you to do X, Y, and Z, but we can't, you know, we, we need you to come with these relational skills and these um, team skills and all this sort of thing. But yet what we see on the, on the training level, community colleges, um, colleges and universities is more and more skill specialization, mm. less and less what would traditionally be called liberal arts or mm-hmm. communicative arts, those sorts of things, right? I, 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 I just I find the disconnect completely fascinating. And I think you're right. It's all about the greenbacks. It's all about, we think, we think that money comes from these discernible skill sets. Can you draw this thing? Can you do this math on this spreadsheet? Can you, whatever it is. It's fast, it is fascinating to me. Um, as well, because I because it's it it also then pulls us apart. Well, I'm really good at this skill set, but I can't talk to you about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm really good at doing this thing, but I can't really communicate to you like how to get it done or why yep. it's valuable or whatever. Well, it's, exactly. It's like scientists who can't explain what they they can't speak in lay people's terms, and so nobody knows what they're talking about, and so people it just goes over people's heads. I mean, Alan Alda has a whole. A communication school that he started to help scientists learn to speak so that people could understand them. Mm. And now it's, now he works with everybody, but um, yeah, I mean, we just, we forget to, we forget how important some of those basic things are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, what's the, what's the most important key for your life right now? Like right in this moment. Ooh, wow. The most important key in my life in this moment, this is going to sound cheesy, but I, it's love. And it's all the permutations of love. You know, it's fierce love. It's angry love you know, don't cross my boundaries, love. This isn't okay with me, love. It is love for our, our earth, our natural world. It is love for the people on this planet who are struggling. It is love for my family, for my friends, for animals, for, you know, like it's just it is why I am who I am and I do what I do. And, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who's afraid of anger because I feel like anger is just a really clear sign that a boundary has been crossed. 
And it gives us fantastic information about who we are and what's okay with us and what's not okay with us. And so I, when I say love, I don't mean it in a like romantic love way, really. I mean, romantic love is wonderful, but, but it's so much more love to me is so much more than that. And I think, you know, love really is one of the most powerful keys out there. And mm. I've, I've seen it again and again in my own life and also witnessing the changes in other people or in other situations where, you know, someone comes with anger or, or hate and someone meets them with this really powerful love and it, it, it changes things. It changes people. Mm. Mm. Well, so if you could drop a key just for the world, for, for everybody right now, what would, what would that, what key would you drop for people? I would drop the key of curiosity, I think right now. Um, you know, are you living your life from a place of fear? Are you living your life from a place of love? Why do you think what you think? Why do you believe what you believe? Why are you afraid of what you're afraid of? Why do you hope for what you hope for? Just, I think curiosity can lead us to so many interesting places. Gentle curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Both of those love, the key for you, love, and the key for, for, for all, I mean, for everybody else is curiosity. Oh, that's great. That's really great. And I can't, I can't wait to go back and listen to this. Mm. I mean, this time has, the time has passed so, so quickly. And, and I didn't even get to get, we're going to have to, we're going to have to do something later on where um, we're going to talk about um, keys for dancing in the kitchen, because yeah. um, that's something, <laughs> something we referenced a number of times, but we never really got back to. So we got, I want to hold that and <laughs> do, do another conversation. Cause I, there's gotta be some good keys for dancing in the kitchen. Um, well, so I, so I, yeah, so I just can't wait. I can't wait to go back um, as always and, and listen to this. I'm, I'm in awe of some of this, where we went, um, how deep we went so fast. And then just some of the, some of the places that we explored. Thank you. Thank you for being so transparent and vulnerable and, and caring and loving and, and, and all of that. And for taking all of this time um, mm. to share. And I can't wait to share this out there. So um, you can find Alana and learn more about, um, some of the projects that she's doing at alanasheeran.com, S-H-E-E-R-E-N is how you spell her last name. A-L-A-N-A is how you spell her first name. Um, the film is Listen Closely, and the website for that is listenclosely.film.com. And right now there's a wonderful trailer there, um, just a wonderful teaser, and there's work being done behind the scenes. And, and it's, this project is, is really going to be powerful. It already is, but it's really going to be powerful. Um, you can you can find her on Facebook, both personal and for the film, and then on Instagram, which is just at Alana Sheeran. So um, please find her there. You can learn more about me at joelmorgan.com, at joelmorgancc, like carbon copy, um, on Facebook and on Instagram. And uh, Alana, I just want to say thank you for being my volume eight, um, Dropping Keys podcast co-conspirator. 
Oh, thank you, Joel. It was really wonderful. I love conversations like this. Yeah, thank you. And so this is how I like to leave every podcast. May the sage drop the key to unlock the cage in which you find yourself. Until next time, everybody. <laughs>